depths. And particularly, we look at life in the depths of guilt and shame. And I hope you please hear me when I say this. When you preach a sermon on guilt and shame in Oklahoma, all you have to do is say, I'm going to talk to you about guilt and shame. And almost immediately, you don't need any further introduction because every single one of us deal with guilt and shame. It captivates us because we feel it. So if you would, would you give your attention to God's Word and let's stand as I read to us from Psalm 130. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God, friends, stands forever. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes together about guilt and shame. When you read Psalm 130, the very first line, out of the depths I cry to you. What are the depths? Well, if you look down in verse 3, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is obviously thinking about the guilt that he feels, the shame that he feels because of his sin. It's interesting. There's a movement since really the 70s that's been extremely popularized in publications and psychological journals about the nature of guilt and shame. And there's a man named Albert Ellis. You don't need to remember that name, but if you're interested, you can read more about him. Who said in the 70s, listen, guilt and shame actually are incongruous with what it means to be a healthy human being. Because there really, there really is no moral standard by which you can judge whether somebody should feel guilt or shame. And so therefore he said very emphatically that guilt, to feel guilty, is actually damaging and wrong. I want you to listen to what he said. No moral standard, but to feel guilty is actually damaging and wrong. What's the problem with that? That in itself, of course, is a moral position. And you can't say that because of your own definition of what you just called what is moral. When we think about guilt and shame, we know that it's true and real, even though there's a big, big push to just move past any kind of guilt and shame. But I want to talk to you about different kinds of guilt that you and I feel. There are three different kinds of guilt. Let me help you understand this. There is a civil guilt. That is, there is a guilt when you break the law. If I speed and an officer pulls me over on 129th when I'm going home, I broke the law. It is a state of being. I have done something that breaks the law, and I therefore suffer the consequence of that and get a ticket. That's civil guilt. It is a state of being. There's also moral or existential moral guilt, 
which is based upon the religious principles of the adherents of particular religions. It would say, for example, that you must pray a certain number of times a day, and if you don't, you are culpable, you are guilty of not keeping up the pillars of your particular religion, or you must keep these Ten Commandments, and if you don't keep all ten, you are guilty. Within the confines of that moral structure, it is a state of being. Now, civil guilt, religious existential moral guilt, there's a third category, and this category is where we live. It is called psychological guilt. It is subjective guilt. It is very possible to actually be guilty in a moral or civil sense, but not feel psychologically guilty at all. You can break the law and have no remorse for it. It is also possible that you have incredible psychological guilt, but you've actually never broken a moral or a civil law. So moral guilt and psychological guilt do not always follow from one another. But many of us feel a weightiness of psychological guilt. Do you remember, um, do you remember in 2010 when they had in the Atacama Desert in Chile, they had, remember the miners that were trapped? They called them the Los 33, the, the 33 miners that were trapped, miles underground, because this huge rock shifted in this Chilean mine, this rock that was 10 times the size of First Bank of Owasso. It shifted, and it began to fall in this mine, and all of these roads that they had built that went miles into the ground began to crumble in. And these men, the head of the crew of this Chilean mine said, when the rock finally hit the ground, the only thing I could think of was the rock that covered the tomb of Jesus. Because there was this 770,000 ton rock that was heavier than the Empire State Building that had trapped these 33 men in this Chilean mine. And I remember watching this together with a billion other people on TV when I was a campus minister. And then I remember walking to the campus thinking, I'm just really glad I don't know any miners. I'd have never been trapped like that. And then when I began to sit in my office hours at this restaurant on campus, and I remember hearing students talk about the incredible enormity of the weight of guilt that they felt because they were at Princeton and they were no longer the smartest kid in the class. They had always been the valedictorians, always been the smartest, and now they're at university and they just simply do not know who they are. And they felt a sense of shame that they had let their parents down, they would let their family down, they would let their tribe down, they would let their kin down, they would let themselves down. <laughs> and then, not long after that, we took a call to come to Oklahoma. And I remember driving to Oklahoma with my family. And I remember as we were driving back much closer to my parents where I grew up, thinking about the, the guilt and the shame that I felt. In ways I'd let my parents down, in ways that my life was different than I expected it to be when I was that age. And I was driving closer to home, physically, but also in a kind of spiritual, metaphorical sense. I remember thinking just about the, the weight of doing ministry closer to my family and struggling with the dynamic of that and wondering, are they, are they disappointed in me? Why do I feel shame 
in certain areas of my life. And I remember thinking back in my college years at A&M about relationships that I cut off because friends didn't meet either certain moral qualifications or, like, I grew up as a total Pharisee. There were certain things that you had to do to be a Christian, and if you did those things, then you were categorically removed from what I thought was a Christian. And I lost relationships with people because they practiced in moderation things I thought you could never practice if you're a Christian. And I'm still reconciling some of those relationships, by the way. Every single one of us deal with guilt and shame. And I thought about the, all those secular kids at Princeton, how they dealt with guilt and shame. And I thought about myself as I drove to Oklahoma. And then I thought about you as I began to meet with you and begin to talk with you. And many of you grew up in the church. You were very different than the students at Princeton. You weren't secular. You were very Christianized. But yet you'd grown up in churches that had used guilt and shame as a motivation to help you become holy. So that you grew up in children's ministry that rewarded verse memorization. But they did not reward. You got stars for memorizing verses, but you never got stars for repentance. You got stars for memorizing portions of scripture, but you never got, got stars for admitting your faults and your brokenness. And you were taught very subtly to repress that. And so now, as an adult, you're growing up, and many of the things that we began to feel guilty about were actually things quite indifferent morally. But you had this standard heaped upon you by which you judged yourself to be walking with Jesus or not, and you subtly found yourselves in the depth. So 33 men were trapped in a Chilean cave for 69 days until they were rescued. I was trapped in the depths of guilt and shame for years. And some of you are still trapped. There's a man named Barry Naramore who says subjective guilt can be divided in two different ways. Subjective guilt can be divided, divided in two different ways. There is a condemning guilt And then there is a constructive sorrow. And my job right now for the next 15 minutes or so is to begin to move you from condemning guilt to constructive sorrow. Because that's the kind of sorrow that Israel had when they walked up to the hill of Jerusalem three times a year for the annual festivals to worship the one triune God. They sang the psalm of ascents. And one of the psalms they sang out loud together was Psalm 130. Can you imagine these people coming up to worship the Lord three times a year and singing, just as we sang in Psalm 130, in the depths I raise my voice to thee, a voice of lamentation. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. There is a great temptation when you deal with sin and sh guilt and shame for ministers to minister to you in this way. And I have done this, and I have to be very careful that I do not only do this. When you tell me your stories of guilt and shame, it is my knee-jerk reaction because I'm an empathetic person to say, you know what, I'm with you. I've struggled with it too. And I kind of like pastorally jump down into the pit with you. But have you ever had somebody join you in quicksand? It doesn't help. It's nice to have some company, but the weight of your presence just actually makes it worse, right? Or there are some people who will say to you, listen, don't say I'm with you. I, I don't need the company. People will say, well, what you need to do is you need to learn. 
So, so they'll give you more systematic theology. They will bury you in Reformed theology. And you will learn. But listen, when you're in the darkness, those Chilean miners did not want to learn how to get out. Or somebody will say to you, well, we'll just give you food and drink. We'll give you morale. We'll let you know it's okay to be there. And so they'll give you food and give you drink. And what happens? Thank you for the morale boost, but I want to get out of the depths. What you need is a rope. You need a rope. And it's nice to have company when you're in the depths, and it's nice to learn when you're in the depths, and it's nice to have a morale boost and have food and drink to satisfy you for 69 days while you're stuck in the depths. But what you need is a rope. And friends, our rope is the gospel. And I want to talk to you about the rope. R-O-P-E in this text. Here we go. What is the rope? Look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist is crying out from the depths, and he is saying, I have nowhere else to go. I am in the depths, and I need you, Lord. The first part of grabbing the rope is to recognize God's holiness and God's mercy. Both God's holiness and God's mercy. And where do you get that from the text? Well, it says, out of the depths, O Lord. In my Bible, that's capitalized. Is it in yours? L-O-R-D, do you see that? Big L, little capital O, little capital R, little capital D. Whenever you find that in your Bible, it is the covenant name for God, Yahweh. It is the covenant God, the holy God who made covenant, who made the world, who stands holy, emblazoned above his people, spotless and pure. Then the next line, it says, O Lord, little O-R-D. Hear my voice. What's going on there? That's the name Adonai for God. The psalmist is saying, O king, hear my voice. O father, do not turn your ear from me. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The first thing you have to recognize is that God is holy. He is Yahweh. But you know what else? He's also your father. The word Adonai comes from the Ugaritic term for dad the Hebrew name for God. He is your Lord. He is the head of your household. He is your father. Until, friends, you recognize that God is both a king, but also your father, both the judge, but also your friend. Both the imminent, I mean, infinitely beautiful, enthroned prince, but also what the prophets called our lover, the lover of our souls. So you can see both of those things. You can't begin to grab the rope. You can't begin to grab the rope. You have to begin to recognize God's holiness and God's mercy. Exodus 34 says that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is who God is. And at the end of days, when we are all together, and I cannot wait to be there, we will sing with the end, holy, holy, holy. He is Yahweh, but he's also Adonai. Do you see that in the text? Uh, they're singing this as they go to Jerusalem. Out of the depths we cry to you, O King, Yahweh, covenant God. Oh, Adonai, O Father, hear our prayers. Are you have to recognize God is holy and he's merciful. O, verses 3 and 4. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's one, it's possible to see that you need mercy. It's possible to recognize that God is a merciful God, that the world is going crazy out there. It's possible to like generically repent. I'm sorry that the world is so bad, God. But yet actually never own your sin. There's the O. You have to own your sin. Not your neighbor's sin, not your spouse's sin, not your kid's sin. You have to own your sin. There's a place in the Westminster Confession of Faith that's an old, old doctrinal statement written 400 years ago. In chapter 15 of the Confession, in section 5, it says that when you repent, don't just merely in a general way repent because your sins are particular sins and therefore they should be repented of particularly. And that means you have to begin to own your sin. And when you begin to own your sin, ever so slowly, you recognize that you have offended an infinitely holy God who is white, hot, wrathful towards sin. But, but, he's also your Adonai. He's your father. Notice in the text in verse 3, it says, If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? There it is. Still this interplay of God is holy and God is deeply personal. If you want to move from this condemning guilt to constructive sorrow, you have to recognize your need or recognize God's holiness and mercy. You have to begin to own your sin. You own it. Not your neighbor, you. And then there's this interesting line because he says it with some confidence. But with you there is forgiveness. And with you is love. That's what I think that the text should say, but it doesn't say that, does it? It says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be what? Feared. With you is the forgiveness of the Father. Why? So that we can fear you as the king. When you see the word fear, it doesn't mean like, ah, boo, kind of fear. It's not like a fear that you're afraid. When you read the word fear, kiddos, in the Bible, it means to have a holy awe and respect. It is a kind of humbling joy in the presence of the greatness of God that makes you tremble with goodness in the presence of such greatness. It is not this existential terror. It is more of like an existential utter respect. With you is forgiveness. Why? So that we can fear you all the more. The more that we are forgiven of our sin, the more we know that we've been forgiven, the greater your sense of fear will be of God. It's kind of like October the 1st is bow hunting season, right? Isn't it? Where are the bow hunters? Yes, right? October 1st, right? Yes, thank you. I know. We're close. We're close. You know, when you bow hunt, the power of the bow depends upon how far you pull it back. If you pull the string back further, the further the arrow will go. Isn't it interesting how that's the same way in our lives, in the Christian life with repentance? Sometimes we have, we wonder why we're not growing in the Christian life and we're just trying to like, we're putting an arrow on the string and we're letting go. Well, why aren't we growing? It's because you cannot see the enormity of the grace and the goodness and the holiness of God until you're able to pull that bow all the way back and see the depth of your sin in his presence and you own your sin. And when that happens, the arrow takes flight, always in proportion to the pull of the string of the bow. 
And so repentance for us, we build it into the warp and wolf of worship. It is the way that we pull the string back to grow in our relationship with Christ. Because repentance helps us own our sin, to be honest about it. Not merely so that we can dwell in our sin, but so that we can move from condemning guilt to constructive sorrow, seeing that God is a merciful, loving, gracious God. Recognize that God is holy and merciful are. Own your own sin. O, P, verses 5 and 6. Patiently wait. Repentance is not merely asking for a pardon. Repentance is the restoration of a relationship. Repentance is not merely asking for pardon. It is the restoration of a relationship. Verse 4 indicates no doubts that he will be forgiven. But then in verse 5 he says, And I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. How do you wait patiently for, to get pulled out of the depths? We know as Christians that we have been given access to some very fundamental, very important truths that the world needs to know, and we've got them because we read of them in, our, in his word. We have been declared righteous in his sight if you trust in Jesus. We have been declared righteous in his sight. That when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as sinful anymore. Why? Because there has been one who was a perfect lamb of God to be a substitute for us so that all the white hat, hot wrath and fury of the Lord would be put on Jesus. And Jesus took away all of our sin. And not only did he do that, but then he gave us, passively took our sin, then he gave us, what? He gave us his righteousness. And we have to wait and you have to wait expectantly, knowing that he has declared us perfectly innocent in the Father's eyes, that we are well represented. But at the same time, you have to expectantly wait. And this is one of the hardest things about being a Christian. Because just because you're forgiven doesn't mean there aren't consequences to sin. And just because you're repentant doesn't mean that some of those consequences don't continue to wash over you. Because God's forgiveness, friends, listen, it is gracious, but it is never free. Jesus paid the price for your forgiveness. And God is fiercely committed to you, so committed to you, that sometimes he has to allow consequences to happen to shape you and mold you more and more into his image, just like a loving parent would toward any son or daughter. His love never changes for you, but those consequences weigh on you. And when you let them weigh on you and you begin to believe that God really, he doesn't really love you because you're suffering the consequences of your sin you begin to get into this negative feedback loop of condemning guilt and shame. And until you can recognize that your God is merciful and he loves you, you're not really able to own your own sin because you'd be afraid to own it because it's just going to pull you quicker and quicker into the depths. But when you can begin to wait expectantly and when you can begin to know that he has justified you in his sight, it gives you a whole new motivation for confession and for joy, and it begins to help you see the sunlight breaking in. In Leviticus 4 through 9, there is a whole eight 
eight chapters, basically, that are dedicated to all of the Old Testament sacrifices and sacrificial system. And whenever Israel came, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, I want the people to wait, and I want them to watch. And then he goes and he gives Aaron all these instructions as the high priest on how to do the sacrifices. And at the very end of Leviticus 4 to 8, you get to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, God says, Moses says of Aaron, Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. After all these sacrifices, for seven days, they're waiting. They're waiting to hear the word of hope. That's the illusion in this text. They're waiting to hear the word of hope, the pronouncement of forgiveness of the people. Aaron lifts his hands toward the people and blesses them. And he came down from offering sin and offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 924. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Because they were waiting for Aaron to bless the people with the forgiveness of God. And once they heard the pronouncement of forgiveness, the Lord sent fire. And they saw it all over again as he consumed the burnt offerings for you. And when you hear in Christian worship at Trinity, when you hear the pronouncement of forgiveness, you should immediately see the fire of God's wrath coming down on Jesus and not on you. And allow you to get out from under the condemning sense of your guilt and move toward constructive sorrow that you're the one that caused that to happen. Because you own your own sin, because you recognize that God is holy and he's also merciful. Recognize God is holy and merciful, are. Own your own sin, oh. Patiently wait. How do you wait? You wait expectantly. You wait obediently. All of Israel sang this psalm together. You wait in community. If you're in the darkness, you will not be able to psychologically get yourself out until you're in the community. But you don't just need the community. You need the hope of the gospel. R-O-P-E, lastly, E. Verses 7 to 8 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he, in Hebrew it's very emphatic, and he himself, if you have an NIV, it says just that, he himself. And he himself will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. R, recognize God is holy and merciful. O, own your own sin. P, patiently wait. Let the penny drop. Understand that Jesus took the wrath for you so that you can stand on the joy of knowing that your Father has infinite love for you because he sees Jesus. E, oh, this is our call, the whole of our life. Return again to the good news that with him is plentiful redemption. And E, examine the empires of your heart. Examine the empires of your heart. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. What does it mean to hope? But what do you look toward to give you the satisfaction that you so long for? Your heart doesn't just have one competing idol. It's not like my heart just longs as a minister to see Jesus grow his church or to see us get into a building or to raise a family that we can be thankful for and 
grateful that our children are walking with Jesus or whatever it is for you, your heart has a thousand idols competing for it. Thousands of them. And if you've ever met somebody who has termites in their home, you know what this is like. It is horrifying to find out you have termites in your house. Because it's not just one two by four. The whole frame needs to be replaced. And even now as Christians, you have thousands of empires coming down, and you have to consistently examine the empires of your heart. And that's what helps you grab the rope. Because it's only, it's only in Christ's finished work for you that you can begin to get out of the depths. You can have people in there with you. You can learn all the theology that you want. You can have a morale boost by being given food or drink or whatever spiritual analogy that may be. But it's until you grab the rope that you can get out. And the rope, friends, is Christ who loves you. Who wants to move you from a condemning guilt and sense of shame and to remind you through constructive sorrow that he wants to drive you to the foot of the cross so that you can say, out of the depths, O oh Lord, I cry to you, O oh Lord, hear my prayer for mercy. With you, there is plentiful redemption. With you, you will redeem me from all of my sins. When Zechariah heard, when he heard that Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist, he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people because he knew that Elizabeth's cousin Mary was also with child. Hebrews 3.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation to the sins of the people. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. Do you believe that? If you're in this cycle of sin and guilt, listen, many of us have been trained to just stay in it, you do not get out of the depths by staying in it. You get out of the depths by admitting you cannot get out of it by yourself. The Lord has dropped you a rope. And his name is Jesus. Grab it. Cling to it with all of your heart. You don't just need the gospel to begin your relationship with Jesus. You need it every day of your life. As the old hymn says, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name because he has hushed the law's loud thunder of condemning guilt. And he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He has washed us in his blood. He has washed us in his blood so that we can draw near to God. Let's grab the rope together. Recognize God is holy and merciful. Own your sin. Wait patiently. Examine your empires. And daybreak will begin to come. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's our challenge for the week ahead. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we confess. I confess. That the feelings of guilt and shame sometimes, Lord, we just do not know what to do with them, and so we coddle them. They make us feel like you're worthy 
because we've punished ourselves enough. Father, help us to know that our punishment has been paid by Jesus. Help us to no longer feel condemning guilt, but help us to feel constructive sorrow. And help that constructive sorrow to move us into repentance, knowing that with you there is plentiful compassion. And help us, like those Chilean miners, to be brought out of the depths. Help us to see you, Lord Christ, who is the rope. And help us to grab onto you. We can grab onto you because you've lowered yourself to us. You are the rope. In your incarnation, you have come to us so that you might heal us from our sin once and forever. And this is our hope for daybreak. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Quiet in your hearts for a few moments and reflect on the word preached as you prepare for this morning's offering.